Welcome to Confronting the Madness. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with one of my favorite people, Dr. David Goldblum. David has been a leading mental health advocate long before it was on vogue. David is a leading psychiatrist and an officer of the Order of Canada. He maintains an active clinical and teaching role as psychiatrist and senior medical advisor at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada's largest mental health teaching hospital and one of the world's leading research centres. David is also a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. In 2007, David was appointed vice chair of the board of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. He subsequently served as chair from 2012 through 2015. He has authored numerous scientific articles and book chapters and has provided talks and lectures to students, professionals, and public audiences. David is a co-author of the 2017 best-selling book, How Can I Help? A Week in My Life as a Psychiatrist. David and I spent the bulk of our conversation discussing his most recent book, We Can Do Better, Urgent Innovations to Improve Mental Health Access and Care. Proposed innovations in David's book include technology-enabled access to treatment, a program to improve access to psychological therapies, integrated use services, and a handful of other innovations that are practical, measurable, and available to be scaled and spread right now. I am personally familiar with and have been involved in helping launch in Alberta some of the innovations discussed. Many of the challenges that currently exist in adopting these innovations, in my opinion, pertain to things like bureaucratic stagnation, political indifference, a fragmented array of program and service providers, legacy and legacy funding programs that no longer meet the needs of health systems, programs and service providers, and most importantly, the patient. I do agree with David, however, we can do better, much better, and that many of the innovations discussed in this episode have promised to improve mental health access and care, but we do need more flexible government support, which includes agile funding programs and individuals working in collaboration with a collective vision who all agree the status quo will no longer suffice. And now I bring to you Dr. David Goldblum. Dr. David Goldblum, thank you so much for for joining me on Confronting the Madness. Um, How are you? I'm well, Mark, and it's uh, great to be back in contact with you, even if it's through the separation of uh, video link. Yeah, I I remember the first time we met was at a Graham Beck Foundation conference, and you and I were at the same table as you're a a board member on with the Graham Beck Foundation. And... um, I, to be honest with you, I didn't know who you were at the time, but then one of the staff at uh, at, at the Grand Beck Foundation quickly gave me your, your bio, and then I thought, oh my, oh my goodness, 
I better uh, act like I know what I'm talking about, at least to some degree. So, and then we, you were, you were in, you were in good company because many, many people have no idea who the hell I am. And some (laughs) of them are at the hospital where I work. So, (laughs) well, um, and then we, you're gracious enough to meet with me and a few of my colleagues at, at the hospital. And I, I very much enjoyed our conversation and thought, given that you've written a new book and given that you've had such a illustrious career, um, that it would be great to have you on to talk about um, your career and, and your book and some of the innovations that you've outlined as it pertains to mental health. I just wanted to give um, the listeners a brief bio of um, who you are and uh, what you've been up to over the last, um, I don't want to say several decades, but uh, actually I do. Um, so you're currently working at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto as the senior medical advisor. You're a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. Uh, you're a graduate of Harvard University, Oxford University, where you attended as a Rhodes Scholar, and then McGill University. In 2007, you were appointed as vice chair of the Mental Health Commission of Canada and also served as the chair from 2012 through 2015. Uh, you've auth- authored more than 100 scientific articles and book chapters, edited two psychiatric textbooks, and is the and you are the co-author of, with Dr. Pierre Bryden of the best-selling memoir, How Can I Help a Week in My Life as a Psychiatrist? And last but not least, you are an officer of the Order of Canada. Um, and you've also recently written a book, uh, We Can Do Better, Urgent Innovations to Improve Mental Health Access and Care. Um, so that reads a little bit like my bio, but, um, there's just a couple of parts that aren't included in mine. So, um, quite, quite a series of accomplishments, um, quite a number of interesting, uh, projects and roles that you've taken on in your career. And so, um, I want to dive into some of the thematic areas that you've talked about in your book, um, and, and just to note about your bio, I didn't do that to give you an error gravitas. I did that to give my podcast an error gravitas. So um, that was the intention Any, behind that. Anybody who knows me is painfully aware of the acute lack of gravitas. <laughs> well, I, I, sh- I should note, this was one thing, being a bald man, when I did read your book, this is a complete aside, but when you were talking about the work that Jim Kennedy's doing in, in pharmacogenetics, you made a, a very specific reference to him being bald since 1993. And I thought that must be an inside joke of, or something between you and Dr. Kennedy, because it just, it struck me as a, you can't make fun of, you can't talk about a bald guy. Okay. Like that in a, in a mental health book, because it's very, makes them self-conscious. Well, it was actually, I think a, a bit of a compliment to Jim. I don't know when he went bald, but the first <laughs> time I met him was back in 1993. And my point was really that uh, his his appearance hasn't changed in almost oh, 30 years. I see. So right? he, has, he, he, he has aged. He has not aged. He looks the same as he did all those years ago. So, okay. <laughs> so talk about... Uh, if you don't mind, just your evolution um, as a psychiatrist working in, in Toronto um, and, and maybe the evolution of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and, and the role that you played in that um, throughout your career, what you saw initially as working on the front lines and then moving up to the more 
general position or or executive positions. How has mental health care evolved during your time? Well, you know, I came of age, Mark, as a psychiatrist when I started my training in 1982. So I graduated from medical school at McGill in 1981 and did an internship mainly in internal medicine and always with the idea that I was going to go into psychiatry, but I wanted to kind of cement my identity as a physician before Mm. uh, specializing. And as I look back on that now, I think it reflects sort of something enduring in me, which is being attracted to being a generalist as opposed to a highly focused subspecialist. Mm -hmm. So when I trained in psychiatry at McGill in the early 1980s, psychiatry itself was in a bit of a transition. Mm -hmm. And the transition was from the older psychoanalytic model of psychiatry that really had dominated psychiatry for at least the first half of the 20th century into the evolution of DSM-3, the classification system for mental disorders, but also uh, in the immediate wake of the birth of the neuroscience revolution. (laughs) Yep. And so I was caught up in the excitement of all of that. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, naively, perhaps, hopeful that neuroscience was going to immediately unlock all the mysteries of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it would only be a couple of years to figure it all out. (laughs) And at the same time, as our diagnosis became uh, a little more rigorous and uh, replicated and Uh, put into protocols, I was also hopeful that this would be a royal road to understanding things. And so I'm uh, older, sadder, and wiser now at the end of my (laughs) career. And so I have probably a slightly different take on it, but I remain, at the end of the day, an extremely hopeful person and an optimistic person by nature. And I think that that's something that has colored my clinical career, my academic career, and my administrative career. Can we just talk maybe about the DSM and, and neuroscience and unpack that a little bit? Um, I, I I totally understand the appeal uh, towards neuroscience and trying to understand the brain. I think that's... Uh, it's it's an it's intensely fascinating and right but then you realize well the brain is intensely complicated and um you know i think i was also naive in thinking that um looking into some of those areas was going to bear fruit quicker than it would with respect to the dsm as it's evolved into what is now dsm5 uh oh i i don't know i guess the question is has it evolved and is it still useful as a classification system, or does it need to be significantly restructured, in your opinion? Well, it will ultimately need to be significantly restructured. But let me say this, that the big revolution was 
DSM-3. And everything that has followed, DSM-4, DSM-4-TR, and now we're into DSM-5, and they've changed it from a uh, Roman numeral mm-hmm. to, a, to uh, an actual number, 5, because there will be a 5.1, right. 5.2, <laughs> and all of those operating system upgrades. But the real change, the big one, was DSM-3. And everything since then has been really a tweak, a minor revision. And when the DSM was created, it was really created to try to uh, create a language of common communication. Mm -hmm. It wasn't meant to be the Bible Mm -hmm. or the truth. It was meant to be a vehicle so that when two people talked about someone who had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they were talking about the same phenomenon. Right. Right. Now, we know uh, from lots of research evidence that schizophrenia represents a cluster of Mm -hmm. different phenomena and the same for bipolar disorder. So these things are not absolute truth, but they are common language and we need a common language to communicate. We just have to be careful about not thinking that we have stumbled upon absolute truth. I'm hopeful that one day the discoveries that are happening in neuroscience and elsewhere will lead us closer to uh, truth, Mm -hmm. uh, but accepting that nobody ever gets to absolute truth. Right. We just inch closer. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that subsequent versions of DSM will inch us closer. Mm And and maybe talk a little bit about the evolution of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health is, I think, what is a beacon uh, in Canada with respect to mental health care and research and how you've seen it evolve um, through the merger of various entities to becoming a brand that people like the general population is attracted to and wants to support because they either have lived experience or know someone with lived experience and how it's come to a point now where philanthropists are making significant contributions in specialized areas and the recent $100 million private donation, which I believe is the largest single donation in, right. to mental health in, in Canada's history how is that how have you felt through all of that and and where you sit now at the latter stages of your career um reflecting on what maybe seemed like a gradual evolution sure and you know to answer that question properly i have to take you a bit through the prehistory of camh which was created in 1998 and i was a uh, a witness to that prehistory. I'm sort of been, I've been like Zelig <laughs> sitting on the sidelines watching all the changes. But what happened in 1998 in Ontario was that the Health Services Restructuring Commission was created by the provincial government to look at the fact that across the province, 3,000 hospital beds had been closed in the 
preceding years without the closure of a single hospital. Mm. (laughs) And so they were asking the question, is this the right way to do things? And uh, in Toronto, there were four institutions that came together. One of them was a place called Queen Street Mental Health Centre. And it had started out in 1850 as the Provincial Lunatic Asylum. Mm. That was its official Mm. name. And as is the case in every single province in Canada, there was a provincial asylum or multiple Mm -hmm. asylums typically located on the outskirts of town Mm -hmm. because that's where you parked crazy people out of sight and out of mind. And they had a mixed reputation, but uh, they had provided care to generations of people with severe and persistent mental illness. So we had Queen Street Mental Health Center. We also had another institution called the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, which was the academic seat of the University of Toronto. And I was the... uh, VP Medical Affairs and Chief of Staff at that hospital at the time of the merger. But there were also two other institutions, one of them immediately next door to the Clark, called the Addiction Research Foundation, Mm. which really had a worldwide reputation for research into addictions, but also offered a clinical service. And then the fourth partner was perhaps less known but was well-known in parts of Toronto, called the Donwood Institute, which was a facility for residential treatment of people with addictions. Mm. And it is where business people from downtown Toronto would go to quietly, under the radar, dry out Mm. from alcohol or get off cocaine. And after three weeks, come back to work saying they'd had a great holiday. And... The reason that these four institutions came together was the recognition that right across Canada, substance use and mental illness were treated in separate silos by different practitioners, often with conflicting philosophies and approaches, with some antipathy uh, between the treatment providers. But if we looked at it from a patient perspective, if you had a mental illness, you had a high risk of developing a substance use problem Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And here's the ultimate irony, Mark. Both the Addiction Research Foundation and the Clark Institute of Psychiatry had emergency rooms that were probably 100 yards apart. (laughs) And let's say you were intoxicated and suicidal and you went to the Clark emergency room, they'd say, you know, we'd like to help you, but you need to get sober mm-hmm. first. So go across the And street. if you went, yeah, go across the street. And if you went to the other emergency room first, they'd say, well, we'd like to help you with your alcohol, but not if you're threatening to kill yourself. Go across the street first. <laughs> so there was an urgent need to merge substance use disorder care and mental illness care into a single facility to create one-stop shopping. But at the, beyond that, there was a need to marry research and teaching mm-hmm. with full-range frontline 
clinical care, as well as care for people with complex, severe, and persistent mental illness. So blending acute care and chronic care and have it run the continuum from childhood to old age. And putting all those four partners together led to the creation of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And uh, that was a turning point, obviously, for us as an organization. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a bit of a bellwether for the country Mm -hmm. as people started to recognize the value of that kind of integration in terms of services, education, and research. So that was that was the kind of origin story, and it was my good fortune to be the founding physician-in-chief of CAMH and serve in that role when we were, frankly, flying by the seat of our <laughs> pants because we uh, created this new organization, and then we had to figure out how to make it All work. Right. And so, of course, we had a, a numerous stumbles along the way, like any startup, but it was built on this rich uh, heritage of four important organizations, and we had a ton of fun trying to make it happen. And so as you got your your shit together, so to speak, and yes. and started to get your organization. That's a working problem. Right, right. <laughs> We're still cleaning it. Up. It always is. Um, and you started to attract attention from the community at large, the business community. Was that a surprise to you um, that donors and the community wanted to support mental health um, to the point of tens of millions of dollars and to the point of a $100 million donation? Did that all come as, did you think that was inevitably going to happen over the course of your lifetime? You know, we didn't. And as you know, there had been up to that point very little historical tradition of philanthropy toward mental illness and substance Mm -hmm. use. These were not popular causes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my brother was a pediatrician at the hospital for sick children Mm -hmm. at the time. And I used to tease him about the fact they could just put an image of a sick child on television and people would keep hitting redial on their phones (laughs) until they got through to an operator so they could give them some Mm -hmm. money. Uh, We faced a much more uphill battle. And uh, I think the turning point in many respects was going back to shortly after the creation of CAMH when we decided to go on our very first fundraising campaign. Mm -hmm. And we set a lofty goal of trying to raise $10 million. And professional fundraising consultants said, uh, not speaking clinically, you're out of your mind. (laughs) There's no way you're going to be able to raise that kind of money. What they didn't count on was the decision of the late, great Michael Wilson to become involved in this cause because uh, he had a son, Cameron, Mm -hmm. who had experienced a severe episode of mental illness that ultimately led to his death. And Michael decided to leverage his 
not inconsiderable gravitas, influence, and profile around the cause of mental illness. Lo and behold, I believe we raised 11 million uh, of our $10 million target and then realized, you know what? We can do this. Mm -hmm. There is an appetite. And as people come forward and as people disclose the inevitable personal relevance of mental illness, because every one of us in Canada has someone we care about in our family, in our network, who has struggled with mental illness, it became a more popular cause. So our next campaign was for $100 million, (laughs) and we surpassed that and immediately started our next campaign for $200 million, and I think closed that out at $288 million raised, and are now in the midst of an even bigger campaign uh, to support the development of our new research building and its programs. And as you pointed out, we had an anonymous donor Mm -hmm. who came forward with an extraordinary gift of $100 million, which is easily the single largest gift ever given to mental health. But these kinds of sizable donations that we've been fortunate to get, they have a catalytic effect Mm -hmm. on other generous people. And so we've been able to assemble a wonderful group of donors and supporters. But I want to point out, this is not strictly about engaging uh, the people who have the good fortune to be extremely well off. We've also got a door-to-door campaign, knocking on doors in neighborhoods and signing up monthly donors. People who say, I'm going to give you guys... $10 a month. And in fact, we have more of those monthly donors than one of the universities here. And that has been eye-opening. And the people who've been doing it have been so effective. They even knocked on our door and my (laughs) wife answered. And she said, well, you know, my husband works at CAMH. And this person was so persuasive she signed up to donate monthly. <laughs> yeah. None of which goes in my pocket. <laughs> no, of course not. I, I, yeah, that does speak volumes. If one person donates $100 million, obviously that's transformational in, in a way. Right. Uh, however, if 100,000 people donate $10, that's a signal of the growing importance of how people perceive mental health care um, in this country. And so if I could just transition to your time at the Mental Health Commission of Canada, um, we're talking about money. Um, You know, in your book, you noted how there was a goal set in 2012 around um, advocating for the government to increase their health spend from 7% to 9% by 2022. Right. And it's nearing 2022 as you reference in your book um and i i don't think we're quite there um how, how what do you, i guess two questions well one i'll start with the first question first what do you think is required to move government in a way such as australia where they've just made 
a $2.3 billion investment in mental health. Uh, why is that not the case here in Canada versus Australia? Well, it's interesting. You know, we always look further afield mm-hmm. to see how things can be better. And so in my book, you know, I reference work in England or Australia with envy. And yet when I speak to them, they talk about things we're doing that they wish they were doing. So, it, it, you know, there's a bit of a grass is greener. Right. Uh, what's interesting to me is we're now in the midst of a federal election campaign where all the major parties are competing with each other over mental health platforms and infusions of funding. And most recently, the Liberal Party talking about uh, federal provincial transfers that might have specific designation for mental Mm. health, which they actually did in the last round of federal provincial transfers, which was the first time that money has been allocated in that way. But it's only half the story. It's one thing to throw money Mm -hmm. at problems and to increase the amount of money that you throw at Mm -hmm. problems. It's quite another thing to ask for accountability of whether it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Because we have a history in Canada of throwing money at problems. And, you know, many years ago, Paul Martin increased the federal transfers in what was called a fix for a generation. Mm. And it uh, was intended to reduce wait times and all that kind of stuff. And inevitably, there's a reduction at the beginning. But then the money just kind of seeps into the concrete Mm -hmm. of the system. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you can't trace it anymore or you can't measure what difference it's making. And I'm, I'm devoted to the subject of measurement of outcome and accountability, which is where I think we need to make a lot of changes in our system. Agreed. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit more, um, but I do want to just get your, 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 some more experiences that you had as the chair of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, um, some of the areas in which you think the most progress was made, not necessarily during your tenure, but as a general scoping of the the organization itself and then also a question around as it exists today is it still relevant um as it was when it was created or do we need to rethink that as well so look i had the great good fortune and my life has been a series of lucky accidents uh i knew michael kirby Mm -hmm. uh, when i was a teenager in Nova Scotia. And I worked with Mike and he was a young man running a federal liberal campaign for a candidate at the height of Trudeau mania. And in those days, you could put a liberal pin on a chicken and he would get elected during Trudeau mania. Uh, But uh, with Mike's management of the campaign and my work as a teenage volunteer, uh, the candidate actually went down to defeat. <laughs> and uh, neither of us remember who he was, but uh, that that was the first time I met you Mike. Should have, you should, and then when you he, should have chosen the rooster. 
Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. Anyway, our candidate got plucked. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, uh, but uh, when Mike was a, a distinguished senator and co-chairing the Senate Committee on Social Affairs, Science and Technology, he and his colleagues produced a report on mental health in Canada called Out of the Shadows at Last. And Mike had asked me if I would serve as a kind of advisor to that group uh, around the report. And that was a tremendous privilege to do that. And one of the recommendations of that report in 2006 was the creation of a national mental health commission. Mm -hmm. So when the commission was developed in 2007, Mike was made the inaugural chair. And then he asked me to be one of his two vice chairs, along with Madeline Dion Stout, a renowned uh, nurse and educator uh, who was the other vice chair. So we were once again in the position of being a startup, mm -hmm. much like MH. And the startup was, again, we weren't sure what we were going to do. We had a pretty broad mandate from the federal government, but we were at arm's length. Mm -hmm. And so while we had some broad categories that we had to meet in terms of uh, stigma reduction and knowledge transfer and developing a national mental health strategy, how we did it was our mm -hmm. business. And that was totally exhilarating and infused with the energy and intellect of Mike Kirby. Uh, it was a wild ride. And we did a lot of things. I mean, I think if I look back now on the commission during its first seven mm -hmm. years, which is when I was involved with it, we created the world's first set of standards for psychological health and safety in wow. the workplace way beyond steel-toed boots and hernia belts, <laughs> because in the 21st century, it's above the neck that counts in most Canadian workplaces. Right. And, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, an international review of standards for psychological health and safety in the workplace said the Canadian ones were the top. Oh, is that right? Wow. And they've been adopted in other countries, by the legal profession of Australia, they've adopted the Canadian standards. And a lot of work has been done to show how those kinds of standards are applicable in small, medium, as well as mm -hmm. large businesses in Canada, whether it's 11 employees at a law firm or 100,000 employees in a regional health authority. These uh, guidelines can make a positive difference. Mm -hmm. And so those have had a significant impact. We developed a national mental health strategy that Canada had never had before. We presented it in Geneva at the World Health Organization to inform other countries. Uh, but it's one thing to have a plan. Canada is full of yeah. plans and reports, yeah. right? And it's another thing to see the wheels of implementation leave the tarmac. Mm -hmm. Now. There's another thing that we did at the Mental Health Commission, of which I think we're, all of us who were involved were very proud, which was to conduct the world's largest study on homelessness among people with mental illness. And again, 
Timing and serendipity are everything. In 2008, before the global financial crisis hit, the federal government under Stephen Harper was rich Mm -hmm. with money. And they offered the Mental Health Commission to give to the commission in its budget $110 million to conduct a research study. And so uh, we scrambled under the leadership of the late Paula Gehring, a wonderful researcher, to develop a protocol that would address homelessness in over 2,000 mentally ill individuals in five Canadian cities, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, and Moncton, each of which faced different challenges related to homelessness and mental illness. And this was by far and remains by far the largest research project in the world on homelessness. And it was a trial of something called Housing First, a concept developed in the United States by uh, a guy named Sam Tsimbaris, which is around the idea that the most important thing is to get a decent and supported roof over people's heads when they have a mental illness. You can't treat mental illness in somebody who's sleeping on a grate or under Mm -hmm. a bridge. And that you do it in a way that provides financial support, but also social support. And it's not dependent on people getting treated first. Mm -hmm. In other words, the housing comes first and the treatment can follow. And in this research project, people were randomly assigned to either treatment as usual, which for many homeless people means a triangle or a rectangle between shelters, jails, and emergency rooms, and as we've seen more recently, uh, Mm -hmm. tents in encampments in city parks, versus being assigned to a choice of immediate housing. And when I say choice, they could choose either to live with other people or live on their own. There was sometimes a choice of neighborhood. And what they got was immediate, furnished, clean, dignified, and financially supported housing. And I had the real privilege several times of visiting participants who were in their own home for the first time. And in case you think these were people who had been recently homeless, I think the average duration of homelessness before they came into the study was about five years. So this was Mm long-term homelessness. Mm -hmm. And the extraordinary pride and respect that they felt in the context of being housed made a deep impression on me. So this evidence got generated and has been the subject of hundreds of scientific papers looking at different angles, different dimensions of the data. It's been very well reported in top journals. And yet, and here comes Mm -hmm. the end yet. In the Globe and Mail a couple of weeks ago, there was an article, I think with the title that Vancouver's Homelessness population 
can learn from Finland. <laughs> and the article talked about the fact that they've been addressing homelessness in Finland by using a housing first approach. And maybe this is something Canada should take a look at. And, you know, I just about spilled my coffee in my <laughs> lap. There was no mention of the fact that Vancouver had been one of the sites of this research, that we had made in Canada evidence that Housing First works. But again, like the national strategy, you need the implementation. You need the scaling up in order for things to really take mm. root. And, and so why why is Canada, and I, I have seen this so many times myself, where, for example, there's a virtual mental health platform in Australia, and there's many in, in Canada as well. However, for some reason, the Australian platform is perceived to be better or more sophisticated what it what what is and then with the housing first 110 million dollar research study why was the evidence not sufficient to make that become a national um policy from the federal government why do we not well you know ultimately mark i think if i if i had the answer to that i'd run for (laughs) office (laughs) uh And uh, this is the uh, terrible dilemma. There's a a significant gap often between research finding and implementation. And in fact, one study estimated that the gap between research discovery and implementation is about Mm -hmm. 17 years, Mm -hmm. which is jaw-dropping, right? However, I think for all of us, uh, one of the unanticipated good consequences of the pandemic is that people's expectations around timelines have been accelerated, uh, in part due to the extraordinary role of the vaccines Mm -hmm. for COVID, right? I mean, I think the uh, previous record for vaccine development prior to COVID was eight years Mm -hmm. for mumps. And here we are you know, uh, more than 30 years into the AIDS pandemic without Mm -hmm. a vaccine. And by contrast, we've got an extraordinarily effective vaccine. We're now leading the G20 in vaccination rates in Canada. So uh, anti-vaxxers aside, there is an enthusiasm and I think a degree of expectation that's going to turn mm-hmm. the heat up under governments to implement change. And I've seen that actually play out uh, in a different area, which is integrated mm-hmm. youth services. And maybe we'll talk about that a little later. But that one is spreading really rapidly across the country. And the provinces that don't have it are starting to say, well, wait a mm-hmm. second, what about us? And how can right. we get in on this? Right. Now, in part, youth is a more popular mm-hmm. cause than homelessness. So everybody's worried about their kids. Not as many people are worried about right. the plight right. of homeless yes. individuals. So 
let's talk about anti-vaxxers. No, I'm just kidding. Let's get into your, let's get into your. I'm I'm not only, not only am I a recipient of the vaccine, I'm also a giver. So I, I'll be in in our vaccine clinic at CAMH tomorrow. Oh, you jabbing are? people as oh, that, I do. That's well. awesome. Um, so let's let's dive into your book and because integrated use services is uh, chapter chapter two. Um, and so you first of all, uh, okay, I'm gonna re, re say the title so folks know it. We can do better. Urgent innovations to improve mental health care, mental mental health access and care. And you write a lot about. You've taken some. You've taken select innovations, and, and you do know it's not an exhaustive list of all of the innovations that are taking place um, throughout the country and the world. Um, but right. what what I think you do a great job of is that you've separated it out into eight chapters, and you have a narrative element of an individual with lived experience, and then you marry that with an innovation that could or did help that individual. And so in chapter one, um, you, you're talking about ADHD and, and the ro- role of remote coaching and and the Stronger Families Institute that was developed by Patrick McGrath. And so maybe just talk a little bit about um, remote coaching and, and why you thought that as, a, as an innovation. So one of the things about remote coaching well, there, there are a number of aspects to it that I think should make people's ears stand up. First of all, this is a made in Canada solution that was originally pioneered in Nova Scotia, but is spreading across the country. And it was a reflection of the fact that it is very, very challenging to access mental health services mm-hmm. for children, for common behavioral problems whether it's anxiety or ADHD or bedwetting, things like that. But it took an unusual approach. It said, what if we offered this service in the evening when families are most likely to be together? What if we didn't make them leave their homes? What if we provided it by telephone? And what if we developed a cadre of coaches, they're not mental health professionals, they're coaches who are intensively trained, supervised, and monitored to deliver proven family-based approaches to dealing with common childhood problems. All of those are uh, strikingly different than our traditional approaches. Mm -hmm. And they've also been uh, very committed, which is important to me, to measuring their outcomes and to monitoring progress so that they don't just have an impression of how someone is doing. They have Mm -hmm. data around how someone is doing. You know, the... uh, There was an American scientist who once said, in God, we trust all others bring data. (laughs) So can I just jump in and ask about that? Because part of what you noted is that as a psychiatrist, you know, there's no real accountability mechanism or outcome measurements 
that are that are right. that are implemented and maybe talk like to me that is a significant issue that exists within the healthcare system wherein um, we have a number of psychiatrists we're not exactly sure if they're treating their patients good bad or indifferent unless there's some sort of formal complaint and and then there's not a collective data set that says um, whether it's local, provincial, or, or federally, that we're we're moving the needle. And what you know, one of the things Tom Insel quoted in or was quoted as saying is that when he spent you know over X billion dollars at at the National Institute for Mental Health, you know, while he he published a lot of cool research papers on neuroscience, he never moves the needle on hospitalizations, uh, recovery for tens of millions of people, and that always stuck with me. And so. You know, given that it seems a bit odd to me that an innovation is simply measuring and holding people accountable to outcomes, why is that not the case in psychiatry? I think uh, there has been cultural opposition to it. But I should tell you at the same time, what we call now measurement-based mm-hmm. care has itself been studied and has been shown to the very act of measuring care improves the outcome of care. Right. Right. Because when you measure things, uh, the act of measurement changes things. It, it tweaks us. Uh, If I just ask a patient, how are you doing? And they say, Mm -hmm. okay, or a little worse or a little better. That may not tell me as much as systematic rating scales tell me that allow me to monitor what is the impact of treatment beyond an right. impression. Yeah. So, uh, so measurement-based care is a culture shift, and I see it coming into place in my hospital, but it's it's not an yeah. overnight thing. Right? Well, what do you? People say, I've been doing it right. this way for my whole career. You know, the definition of clinical experience is repeating the same mistakes year after year with increasing levels of confidence. <laughs> yeah. That also sounds like the definition of insanity. Um, so on that note, with respect to psychiatry or the, the, the fee-for-service model itself, do you... How do you think about that model? Because I know in Alberta, there's been a, a, a movement afoot to um, basically have psychiatrists on salary, whereby they do X percent clinical, X percent research, X percent teaching. Um, the uptake's been uh, poor or, or slow, obviously, for the financial incentives that the fee-for-service model provides. Um, how do you think about that? As as a, as, Is it a problem or is it... Um, a requirement to have a fee-for-service model in place? So, look, I I think that blended models actually, in my experience, work quite well. We know that in all walks of life, money is a motivator of human behavior, one of the bigger motivators. And there's no reason to think people in medicine would be somehow immune Mm -hmm. from that. The white coat is not made out of Kevlar. So uh, the 
the lure of the dollar will always be there. Uh, at the same time, uh, I worry about populations that will be left behind in a fee-for-service model. And I'm not alone in worrying about those. So people, uh, uh, older people, people with intellectual or developmental disability, people with severe and persistent mental illness who are not going to routinely show up at the mm -hmm. appointed hour for an outpatient appointment, right? right? These populations need mm -hmm. our help. And similarly, if you're going to commit to conducting research or being heavily involved in education, it shouldn't be with a right. vow of poverty. And so people need to be compensated mm -hmm. for that. So I've seen blended models that work very well. They do reward people for mm -hmm. working harder in terms of uh, clinical activity, but they also don't lead people into just right. doing that because they also compensate them for time spent in mm. other mm. activities. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to um, chapter two, and you use the example of anxiety as, as the disorder um, in a young person and talk about the emergence of integrated youth services as a, a model of care um, that was developed uh, by Pat McGorry in Australia uh, through Headspace and has quickly been growing throughout the world, really. I was actually at a, um, right. I tagged along on a tour of a foundry center uh, three or four years ago, which is an integrated youth services uh, initiative in British Columbia. And I was with um, folks from Stanford University and they were coming to learn how to develop an integrated youth services um, initiative uh, in a, in a uh, county in California. And so, again, that speaks back to or harkens back to Canada being a leader that um, nobody ever talks about, right. perhaps. But maybe, maybe, maybe talk through right. the innovation that is integrated youth services and why it is taking um, the world by storm in terms of a new way to look at taking care of young people. So, you know, integrated youth services are typically targeted at people aged sort of 14 to 24. And what's the reason for targeting that population? Well, that is unfortunately the characteristic age mm -hmm. of onset for any number of either common mental disorders like anxiety and depression or less common disorders like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, eating disorders, substance use disorders, or personality disorders. So we know that this is a population that is just by virtue of age alone mm -hmm. at risk for their first experience of mental illness. We also know that Currently, about 50% of young people first encounter mental health services by going to an emergency room. That means the uh, horse has already mm. bolted from the barn uh, if they're going to an emergency room for their first access to help. And surely we can make help available upstream before kids get right. that jammed up. 
that they need to go to an emergency room. But if you think about our traditional youth resources, whether they're in hospitals or clinics or private offices, and they're built around fixed appointment times and wait lists to be seen that may be anywhere from weeks to months to in some cases even mm -hmm. years, how does that fit with the optimal meeting of yes. needs of young people? So Pat McGorry, whose work led him to be declared Australian right. of the Year, uh, which is a pretty big honor. I'm sure it's the only time it's gone to <laughs> yeah. a psychiatrist. Um, uh, Pat McGorry decided to develop with his colleagues the Headspace model, which is, I think, now in more than mm -hmm. 100 sites across mm -hmm. Australia. And it's based on principles of community location, non-institutional, youth-friendly, with low barriers to access. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. you don't need an appointment. You can walk in and talk to somebody when the mood strikes you. doesn't mean you're instantly in treatment, but what it does mean is that if you have a problem that requires treatment, that you're going to be right. fast-tracked. And so that your weight is going to be measured not in weeks to months, mm -hmm. but in hours to days. And uh, in the Canadian version of this, that was uh, initially developed through uh, a research project called Access mm -hmm. Open Minds, which was co-funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Graham Beck Foundation to the tune of $25 million. So that's a pretty mm -hmm. big research project. And they had sites running in six provinces and territories simultaneously, where they were providing these youth integrated services. And by the way, when I say integrated, what I mean is that a young person can come there, not simply for mental health needs, but also physical health needs, also educational needs, also occupational needs. So one-stop mm -hmm. shopping. And in all of these sites, if you walk into them, you'd say, whoa, this doesn't look to me like any, this doesn't look very mm -hmm. professional in the sterile, traditional sense of professional. And that's because youth and their families are intimately involved in the design, the furnishing, the governance of these organizations. So... Uh, they make it a youth-friendly mm -hmm. place. Because if you put up any barriers, there's a significant chunk of youth who will say, uh, no thanks, mm -hmm. not for me. So the, the goal is to get the barrier low, especially for populations that may be uh, particularly vulnerable or marginalized, whether it's on the basis of socioeconomic status, ethno-racial status, sexual orientation. And again, around the theme we've been talking about all the way through this, around mm -hmm. data and outcome monitoring, Access Open Minds has really good evidence accumulated already, and it's publicly available on their website, showing they are reaching the populations who may be most mm -hmm. at risk. So that this isn't simply 
uh, care right. of the yes. affluent. And and so with, with integrated youth services, do you see because each province, as it stands, is is moving at a different speed and doing things a little bit differently, and you know it's not intended to be a top-down initiative, but community-driven. However, personally, I've always struggled with the notion that there needs to be some sort of coordinated approach or optimally across the country. And it seems to me a point we're at a, a point in time whereby perhaps this is an initiative the federal government should step in and provide funding for, for, for all of the provinces. Do you see um, a time and place where that is the case? I do. Although, you know, the federal government is very careful about stepping on right. the toes of provinces where 50% of their budgets are spent on health and it is under provincial right. jurisdiction. So it has to be done in a kind of collaborative way. Now, I, I should say that um, organizations like Foundry, organizations like the Graham Beck Foundation are playing catalytic roles in mm -hmm. different provinces to try to help with the startup of these integrated youth services. And clearly, the governance and design has to be local and consistent with the needs of the local communities that they serve. This is not about uh, a McDonald's-style fast right. food franchise. However, uh, there has to be fidelity to the basic mm -hmm. operating model and taking us back to our uh, earlier discussion about the need for a common language within the DSM. In an ideal world, there is a single mm -hmm. data set that's used from province to province to province. And I know that the people who are the leaders in Canada right now of integrated youth services are having very, very active engagement mm -hmm. with each other around the importance of a common data set and common mm -hmm. outcome measures, mm -hmm. which we don't have in Canada throughout yeah. healthcare. And I, I, I could, right. So this could be, this is, could be where, where mental health is actually leading the way to other yes. health. And I, I could talk about integrated youth services for another few hours but i i guess i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a cynical question <laughs> as it relates to mental health care in canada is that is is politics and ego a significant issue um that is hindering our progress in this country because i think the notion of integrated youth services is intended to be a collective impact model whereby it's not about you as an individual or an organization, but it's about the outcomes for the young person. And even when, even when it comes to research yeah. and measurement, you know, are there, there's competing factions amongst certain people about what data, how you should capture the data, whose um, me method is better, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that's a significant problem or, and unique to mental health care, or is that just human nature i i think it's a human nature problem mark and uh you know uh, human nature 
is such that some of our uh, priorities are mm -hmm. territoriality, mm -hmm. right? In the same way, you know, dogs <laughs> mark their spots. I think yeah. humans mark their spots. That's one sort of primordial mm -hmm. instinct. And another mm -hmm. one is hierarchy, right? Is right. mine better right. than yours, yeah. right? And so that need leads to even regardless of our federal provincial structure, that leads to people saying, I need to put my own brand yeah. on this. And you know what? I have no problem with that. It doesn't need to be called foundry or access open minds in every province, mm -hmm. in every city. Yeah. I don't care, frankly, what you name it. And in fact, if you come up with a name that encourages more local ownership, local accountability, local support, mm -hmm. good on you. Yeah. That's a great thing to do. I'm talking about the, the bones of the organization and the accountability of the organization as being uh, what is important to me. And I think we've actually now got good evidence in Canada that that can be done. And, you know, it, it's one thing to view politics mm -hmm. as a hindrance. But I think you have to take the long view. The long view would be that 20 years ago, no political party, federally or provincially, was making mental health a significant part mm. of their platform when they ran for election. Every political party, regardless of stripe, now makes it a priority on their platforms, on their short platforms. So I think, and again, maybe I'm just being my old, hopeful, optimistic self, uh, but maybe it's because I've lived a long time that uh, that the the tides. Yeah, and, and that's well said. And I think the long view perspective is the right perspective. And I would also um, add to that, you know, my generation and the generation, even the younger generation, mental health has become such an integral part of their everyday lives by which they talk about it openly. Right. Um, they They seek treatment more now than ever. And so that's another long view uh, perspective that I think um, my cynicism can be quelled by thinking about it that way, the way in which you described. <laughs> um, so I want to move on to um, chapter three, where you talk about short-term treatment options. And the you talk about borderline personality disorder, which I'm curious at the onset, just your thoughts on that classification itself and the name itself, I know you referenced in your book um, the notion that it's a confusing label. And I think there's been a movement um, to, to relabel it or rename it. Just before we get into the actual innovation in that, uh, in that space, what are your thoughts on the name? So the name actually has its origins from recognizing people who were described as being on the border between neurosis mm. and psychosis, right? And that's where, that's where the whole name comes from. Uh, it has taken right. on a life of its own. It's a very commonly recognized form of uh, personality difficulty, 
that is characterized cheap, chiefly by problems regulating mm -hmm. one's own moods, that these moods become intense, overwhelming, problems with anger, and in particular, difficulty with interpersonal relationships, intense attachment, fear of abandonment, and also colored by a vulnerability toward impulsive behavior, whether it's uh, substance use or shoplifting or uh, spending impulsively, and a lot of difficulties for those individuals who are affected by it with a sense mm -hmm. of who they are as people, that their identity is something that can become quite fuzzy for them. And we see this at its most intense uh, in late adolescence, early adulthood, because it can often bring people to emergency rooms in the wake of either overdoses or uh, cutting behavior uh, where they will uh, cut their uh, arms not to die, but to distract mm. themselves from overwhelming feelings. And when you talk to individuals about what they experience when they cut themselves, they say, I, I feel more grounded or I, I, the pain mm. makes me feel real. And uh, it's different than what I was experiencing immediately beforehand. So the immediate impact is relief. And it's not with mm -hmm, the intent mm -hmm. to die. But because they're bleeding and because they're cut, they may end up in an emergency room or they may require sutures. Although many young people who cut themselves do so in a way that right. they don't need sutures. And, and the symptoms are really most prominent, as I said, in late adolescence and early adulthood. And if you follow people with this disorder over time, the symptoms tend to extinguish in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, but not before incurring mm -hmm. a lot of suffering for them and for people in their orbit. And uh, it can also uh, make people more vulnerable to clinical depressions yeah. and other and, and so maybe talk a little bit about um, dialectical behavioral therapy and DBT light, as you referenced it uh, in the chapter, but before before you do that, I have a question as it pertains to. Um, so there's the there's the treatment or the therapy, and then there's the willingness of the individual to want to receive that treatment or therapy. And if they're not taking medications, you know, I've had a lot of questions from family members asking how what how you best. And I know this is a extremely difficult question, but from your experience, what is the best way to support an individual to get them closer to accessing something like DBT or DBT light? You know, this is a question I get about every mm -hmm. form of mental illness, whether it's borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia or depression or anxiety or an eating disorder people are often very ambivalent about getting help. Although I would say in the main, more Canadians want mm -hmm. help mm -hmm. than get help. Yeah. And as long as we have that imbalance, more people wanting it and needing it than getting it, 
then we have to think about how to provide mm-hmm. services differently, right? Uh, you know, you've got uh, the situation in the United States where mental health providers are sometimes looking for patients. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough to fill their practices. We don't have that issue in right. Canada, right? Uh, anybody who's looking to connect with a psychiatrist will know just how challenging that can be to find mm-hmm. one who has an opening. But in terms of how you help somebody get help or want to get help, uh, part of it comes from, I think, mm. being a bit of a pest. And, and when I say being a bit of a pest, I mean, it's often not a one-time conversation where you, they say, no, I don't want any help. And you say, well, okay, I'm done. I asked and they said, no, I'm done. Because if you see that that person is struggling, you may have to go back to them repeatedly. You may need to make sure that you have an opportunity to talk with them in an environment and in a manner where they know you're not about to flee, right? The hand Mm -hmm. on the doorknob question Mm -hmm. of how are you doing, right? There are many ways we signal our wish to extricate ourselves from difficult conversations. And then really it's a matter of finding out what distresses that person. Because what distresses you as an observer may not be that distressing Mm -hmm. to that person as some other element of what Mm. they're struggling with. And so finding the hook, if you will, of their subjective distress and whether they would like that to be different I think is one of the ways in to getting them some help. Sometimes also people feel tremendously alone mm-hmm. with their experience. They, you know, just yesterday I did a consultation on an individual, a woman in her thirties uh, who has symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And she's been thinking oh. about it for 10 years before she got help. And she wondered if this was her problem. And then she read some accounts of adult women with ADHD. And she told me she wept as she read it, not only because she recognized herself, but also she realized for how many years Mm -hmm. she had been blaming herself and for how many years she had been feeling alone in the world. Mm with her experience. And that really sucks feeling alone in the world. But when we're suffering, Mm -hmm. that's our natural Mm -hmm. instinct, right? Uh, Our natural instinct isn't to think, wow, I'm one of hundreds of thousands of people going through this experience. No, our sense of who we are as unique individuals leads us to believe that what we're experiencing is Mm -hmm. unique to us. And in fact, the reality of most mental suffering is that it's far from unique. It's highly reproducible from person to person to person. Indeed, if it wasn't, I couldn't diagnose anything. Right? That's the, the secret of all of medicine. And please don't repeat this outside this podcast is two words. Tell me. Do you know what they are? Mm. pattern recognition 
that's how we make diagnoses throughout medicine. It's not so much the lab tests, it's the patterns of symptoms that point us toward the right lab tests or point us toward the right treatment. But can you imagine what it would be like for a physician if patient after patient came into his or her office each day with symptoms that that clinician had never seen before <laughs> in his or her life. They'd be a That's wreck right. by the end Dr. of Google, day two. Dr. Google would be in overdrive, right? as you referenced, Dr. Google. Exactly. And by the way, Dr. Google, who is the worst enemy of all uh, living physicians, is uh, ultimately mm. Dr. Doom. Because... As long, the more you stick with Doctor Google, yeah, the worse yeah, the, the rabbit hole gets deeper. Get. So, but I, I exactly, I'm looking at the time here, and I know I, I, I could blab on forever. So I'm going to get back. I want to get back on our thematic track, and then maybe I'm gonna, I'm going to shorten some of these chapters into some thematic areas. But talk about dialectical behavioral therapy and how accessible it is, uh, the origin story, and then how dialectical behavioral therapy light became a, a treatment option for individuals with borderline personality disorder. So dialectical behavior therapy was really pioneered by a, an individual psychologist in the United States named Marsha Linehan. And uh, it was taking a different approach to people who are uh, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And what it does is blend elements of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a widely validated psychological treatment for anxiety and depression, along with some uh, Eastern, more meditative techniques uh, and sort of marrying the two together. And then it has been subjected to uh, a number of clinical trials and has shown its value to the extent that it has really become the preferred form of psychological mm -hmm. treatment, not the only form, but the preferred form for many people for uh, treatment of borderline personality disorder. The problem is in its initial formulations, you know, people were in DBT treatment for a year or more, weekly, individual, mm -hmm. plus group. And while that led to good results, it also led to mm -hmm. enormous waiting lists. And there are not as many people who are trained in this technique mm -hmm. as we need. So Joel Paris at McGill is one of the people who's asking the question that needs to be asked throughout mental health and throughout health in general. What is the least amount of treatment mm -hmm. that will do the most good? Because when you ask the question that way, as opposed to saying, what's the most treatment we could provide that would do the most good? then you are diminishing the opportunity costs of intensive treatment. And the opportunity costs of intensive mm -hmm. treatment are wait lists, 
our lack of access to help when it's needed. So Joel Paris at McGill really tried to develop what he called DBT Lite, which is a much shorter version of DBT. And this move to find shorter versions of treatment really has a long history. And at the very beginning of our conversation, we mm-hmm. were talking about psychoanalysis, which is a treatment that is typically measured mm-hmm. in years in terms of its duration. And really by the 1970s and 80s, people were saying, well, could we develop shorter versions of this? And indeed, people developed models that involved Mm -hmm. 10 sessions as opposed to hundreds of sessions and had really good outcomes with that. So uh, similarly, with DBT, there is a push to develop shorter versions, Mm -hmm. develop online versions, develop apps that can deliver DBT. These are all ways of taking something of proven value and modifying it and adapting it and transforming it without losing the core, but making it more accessible, more available. Mm. That's what it's about. So panic disorder and self-referral chapter four, I had Dr. David Clark on who was the Found, founder creator of the oh, IAPT program improving access to psychological therapies um, and so I, I'd encourage listen, listeners to to check that out that's another innovation that you reference in your book and maybe um, we could gl- not gloss over it but I know there's work being done in in Canada uh, through a fellow colleague of yours at CAMH Paul Kurdiak and Kurdiak. so just to summarize, um, in in the United Kingdom, uh, Dr. David Clark had been working on de- trying to improve access to psychological therapies for the past 20-odd years, and they've gotten to a point now where I believe they're providing access to up to 600,000 individuals through this program. And one of the innovations that they've found to be um, very promising, to your earlier point, is that every single session they have the patient do an assessment of their mood. And so how is that? And correct me if I'm wrong on any of those um, comments. So how, no, how, is, it, how is it going right. in Canada and, and where do you see it, 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 it evolving? So in Ontario, there is an initiative called the Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Project. David Clark has been a key advisor to the development of that project. It is very much modeled on what's been done through Mm -hmm. the IAPT initiative. It is very focused on measurement-based care, on improving access. It's, I would say at this point, still in the early growth phase, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that Ontario is home to almost 40% Mm of the Canadian population so that if we can make it happen in Ontario, it will hopefully be an exportable model to other provinces as well. So, uh, you know, the IAPT initiative is a remarkable thing 
from many perspectives. First of all, it is publicly funded psychotherapy provided mm -hmm. by non-physicians. Now, in Canada, the legacy of our Medicare system is that the only place you get publicly funded multidisciplinary care is mm -hmm. if you're in the hospital. Once you're an outpatient, it's mainly uh, provided by physicians. We will never have enough physicians or even enough psychiatrists to meet the mental health needs of Canadians, nor should we. We should have a cadre of people with different skill sets who are publicly funded to provide evidence-based mm. and measured mental health care. And so uh, I'm hopeful we will move in that uh, direction. I believe the CAMH Foundation in the Globe and Mail had a had a a piece a few years ago making the case for publicly funded psychotherapy in, in Canada. What are you, what are your thoughts on that as a viable option moving forward? Well, I think it is a viable, I think it is a definitely a viable option. If you look at the private sector, what have they found in the private sector? Uh, they've found that when they invest mm -hmm. in employee mental health, it is a positive return on investment, right? And you don't have to take this from me. You can trust PricewaterhouseCoopers yeah. and Deloitte, who've done the kind of studies in Australia and Canada that show that mental health in the workplace programs yield a positive investment. You know, one of the, the great Canadian examples is Bell where they have, I think, 90 key performance indicators related to mental health as an organization and where their investment in mental health has led to a double-digit decrease in short-term disability costs. We have organizations in the private sector like Manulife or Starbucks that have looked at the benefits that were traditionally provided for psychological help. And in, in many businesses, in many benefits plans, those are the same mm -hmm. amount of money, $500 a year, that you might get for a massa massage mm -hmm. <laughs> or seeing a naturopath. And uh, companies like Manulife and Starbucks have raised mm -hmm. that into the thousands of dollars because yes. that's what they yes. need. That's what yes. their and employees that need. So there, the return on investment will be there. And in fact, I think David Clark has demonstrated uh, in the IAPT project that it is a positive return on investment in terms mm -hmm. of uh, disability payments through the national government. Now, in the UK, there right, is much right. more central control of health through the National Health Service. And that makes implementation mm -hmm. at a national level easier personalized care personalized medicine is chapter five and and this is where you reference my bald friend jim kennedy um she's mark i'm i'm getting worried I, I, nobody's gonna read the book well i was just i was just thinking that chapter. myself and i thought oh that's that's probably a, a rookie move on my <laughs> behalf but um may, maybe what we can do here is talk about what pharmacogenetics is the promise it holds and maybe the, the recent advancements that are making it 
you know, when you said you were excited about neuroscience when you first started many years ago, and now some of it's finally starting to come to fruition. That ex- that that was one of the more exciting parts right. of the book that that you referenced. So pharmacogenetics is simply a matter of looking at your genetic profile in detail to see if it will help to predict what medications you might respond to or tolerate. Because right now, if you go to your family doctor and need to be on an antidepressant, how is the family doctor going to make a decision about which of the many available antidepressants or, frankly, uh, medications for high blood pressure, which one to put you on? And uh, at the moment, it may be influenced by things like, well, the last patient I treated with drug X did really well, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to back a winner. Or the drug rep from company X recently came in with donuts for my staff and uh, offered me some samples that I've got in my desk drawer. So maybe I could start the person on some samples and see how they go. Or they may uh, find out that someone in the patient's family Mm -hmm. has had a positive response to a particular antidepressant, or maybe in the past, this patient has had a particular response. Well, pharmacogenetics offers the hope of moving the needle into a more uh, predictive Mm -hmm. model of benefit. And indeed, in the study that Jim Kennedy has been involved in, you the patient gives a blood sample and you get a report card as a clinician with drugs that are clustered under red, yellow, and green. Mm-hmm. And that's very helpful to guide first choices. Uh, some people in Michigan have done a large-scale study which showed real advantages uh, to using pharmacogenetics to uh, help predict antidepressant drug choice. This is still mm-hmm. a work in progress. All right. We're not at the end of the road here, but we're not in the starting blocks anymore. Uh, this uh, this has and, definitely and started the around book the track. As well, um, and don't worry, actually, the audience that's going to buy your book is different from the audience that's going to listen to the podcast. And plus, plus now you're not going to have to do the audio book version anyways. You can just use this as the, uh, as the audio book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought on that stupid joke, but um, you. Actually, Mark, you know, I, I did yeah. an audio book of my last book for audible and it was five days out of my life to read in a recording studio each word of a 300-page book aloud, and you're not allowed to change a single word. It has to be an exact replica, uh, and after about three or four hours, your voice gets pretty dry, so you have to stop for the day. So five days of my life gone uh, for the Are are you going to do the audio version for this one? 
Okay. <laughs> Only if there's okay. demand. Um, At least it's it, you can now now privately pay for um, a service that will provide you with that red, yellow, green. Is that correct? And what what is the approximate cost yes. on something like that? Oh, okay. okay. You know, I don't know what the cost is, and there are there are competing. Yeah. You know, this is a marketplace, so there are competing uh, services in that um, regard. So, in the interest of time and respecting your time, I want I, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish with a few more general questions. We did cover some of the other chapters as well at the onset. Um, you do talk about opioid use disorder, and I'm just curious about your perspective on the notion of harm reduction versus recovery. In Alberta, there's um, a government that's very much recovery focused, um, feels as though it's been neglected in the met by the medical profession and that um, no one should be using drugs as a mechanism by which to um, stop using drugs. How do you how do you look at that conversation? So I, I look at that conversation as being a completely mm-hmm. false dichotomy between harm reduction and recovery. Firstly, uh, recovery itself mm-hmm. can be defined uh, a number of ways. So I, you know, I see people who say, you know, mm-hmm. I've got a problem with alcohol right now. I don't want to stop drinking, but I'd like to be able to drink in a more right. controlled and responsible way. Well, given that 80% of Canadian adults drink alcohol and the vast majority of them in a controlled and responsible way, are we going to say to that person, absolutely not. You have to either swear off booze or stay as you are. And second of all, harm reduction is for many Mm -hmm. people a stepping stone to recovery. So that's why they're not mutually exclusive. And if we say, no, 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 we're only going to provide treatment to the people who are ready to take the plunge and be completely abstinent, you will be able to recruit people for those services. There are people who definitely say, I don't Mm want to smoke or drink or use drugs ever again in my life. Please help me. And those people are deserving of help. But you are closing the door on a whole other uh, tranche of the substance using population who will accept some kind of help. And those people require often a more extended engagement around improving their motivation to change. Uh, making it making their existing use less likely to either kill them or mm-hmm. catapult them into a life of crime to support a habit or end up homeless and on the streets. And those are also things worth doing. Through this uh, pandemic, we've seen a significant mm-hmm. spike in drinking in binge drinking, and in opioid deaths. 
right? And there are some people who say, well, you know, they they mm. got what they deserved or something hard-hearted like that. And then you hear the story of a parent who lost a child mm -hmm. to an opioid death. And you suddenly can't uh, dismiss mm -hmm. it, right? As somebody described statistics as numbers mm. with the tears wiped away. So we have lots of statistics uh, yeah. about opioid deaths, but the uh, the trajectories and the unique individuals who've been affected and the families who've been affected all speak to the fact just, we need just to do a better quick job. response on this why, why do you think there's a what is the philosophical divide there is it um a religious uh, like for the recovery people that do, just absolutely do not believe that harm reduction or has a place in the continuum of care for yeah, I think there there is a bit of a philosophical divide. Right. Yeah. There's a moralistic divide. And, and the moralistic divide is that if you provide harm mm -hmm. reduction, right. yes. you're yeah. really enabling people, right? And But the point of that, the, the, the counter argument to that, Mark, is that you're not taking people off the street who are not using drugs and alcohol and say, I'd like to enter you into a harm reduction program. Mm -hmm. So first we're going to give you these Percocets and Oxycontins and uh, some Jack Daniels, and then we'll teach you how to reduce. Right. These are people who are already right, right. having trouble yes. with substance um, use. Okay. I'm, I'm going to end on, on, on this just as we, we started talking about measurement and I want to talk about technology a little bit and, and also tie in the notion of, you know, research goes from bench to bedside. It takes 17 years on average. You noted in your book that there's over 10,000 apps related to mental health um, for download, I think, for anxiety and or depression. And only 22 of those have been evaluated using uh, randomized control research trials. What is what is the future in your mind of apps and technology uh, for the for a more, more accessible and effective delivery of mental health care, uh, and obviously the pandemic has uh, accelerated the use of what people thought needed much more time to <laughs> be thought through. But how do you see that? Sure. What what role do you see all those technology playing in, in mental health care? So look, we've already witnessed in the pandemic the transformation of all healthcare, except mm -hmm. for hospital-based care, into virtual care. Right uh, before the pandemic, do you know how many Ontario psychiatrists were regularly engaged in television? I do only because you read it. You wrote it in your book, but you you tell the audience. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I forgot it was in the, I haven't read the book in a year, uh, but it's uh, 7%, right? right? And then it basically right. went to about 100% with the pandemic because, you know, people need to do their jobs and earn a living. So uh, I think that things are changing rapidly. Um, and I think that the future is quite limitless 
for technology. There are lots of studies now that show the effectiveness mm-hmm. of internet-delivered CBT for anxiety compared to traditional face-to-face CBT for anxiety with no significant difference. As for the world of apps, yeah. that's a bit more of the Wild West, right? Because, uh, you know, there are issues related to privacy. I mean, how many people... Mm-hmm. I was never on Good. Facebook Good myself or any other social media, but I was amazed when I would hear about all the personal information people would share without thinking, what's the economic model here? And and how is this information being used? And of course, then they discovered all the algorithms that allow Facebook to predict your (laughs) likes and dislikes better than your family can. So, uh, um, you know, I, th- I think this is a huge potential. And one of the apps yeah. that I talk about called WISA, which was developed in Bangalore, India, which is really the Silicon Valley of India, was initially designed to reach the 70% rural population of India who don't have access to mm-hmm. uh, much health care, but all of whom have smartphones, Right. Uh, the proliferation of smartphones, I think there's 6 billion on the planet right now, uh, is a vehicle that we cannot ignore. And so uh, people are scrambling now, not simply to develop the apps, but to actually develop a new kind of research methodology to evaluate them. And the contrast I would give you is if you develop a medication and you patent it, For the next 14 years, that drug is unchanged. It's the same pill 14 years later that it was at its origin. If you develop an app, you're going to be continuously upgrading it and modifying it. So uh, it's a challenge for research because by the time you get the research done, that model's out of date. Um, so you're 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 bullish on technology, and I'm going to end with this question because it did. Um, this was one of the ending parts of your book, and I had to look up this expression. But you said simply waiting for governments to react is like waiting for Gadot. So you know it's not going to happen. And one of the innovations that you didn't reference in your book is around psychedelics and the private the private sector is dumping in hundreds and hundreds of million dollars into making this become uh, a market. How how do you, how do you think about a, the private sector and then B psychedelics as a modality uh, as part of mainstream psychiatry or mental health care moving forward? So uh, look, I, I think it's, a work in progress that requires the kind of rigorous evaluation academically that's happening under very controlled circumstances at teaching hospitals. However, the uh, the lure for the private sector mm-hmm. of a big return on investment is leading to the generation of clinics, 
and uh, other kinds of investments. You know, uh, we look, we've seen with the, in the wake of the legalization of cannabis, right? We've seen massive growth. It's, it's in the report on business of the Globe and Mail every week. There's some article about, you know, mergers and takeovers within the cannabis industry yeah. and then cannabis infused drinks and cannabis infused everything. And the cynical part of me wonders if, you know, well, they're discovering what a criminal element has known for yeah. a long time. There's lots of money to be made here. And so I, I worry about that dimension and about the entrepreneurial right. yeah. aspect yeah. getting ahead well, of the science. Yes. Well, you've been very gracious with your time as you always are with me and i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and i I encourage folks to uh to pick up your book and uh listen to this podcast and read the book would be optimal but you know just listening to the podcast for my own self-interest would be fine too doctor (laughs) yeah both is probably better (laughs) i'm in favor it's great seeing you and um take care of yourself Likewise, Mark, thank you so much for this.